0: I answer better to Missy, and I'm Missy and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm aware that we have been listening to people for hours, and I am the last speaker, but if you knew how long I'd been preparing this talk, just hang in there one more hour. (laughs) Thank you. Good. Some of you may take this opportunity to be filling out your evaluation sheets. And that's okay, but as I was looking at mine, I got aware that we were asked to fill out the evaluation criteria about six months ago, and I had not written this speech yet. You may notice that what I've asked you uh, to evaluate, whether I cover point by point, has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. So don't let that throw you. This is tough. I'd like to begin with an experience I had several months ago. It not only relates to the remarks I'm about to make, it speaks with particular poignancy to our gathering as members of IDAA who have come together again. The scene, a chilly, windy, rainy day. We are huddled under a small awning waiting for a memorial service. The man being honored is a world-renowned psychotherapist. We have come to speak of this man who has died unexpectedly. What is known, but not now spoken, is that he died of cardiopulmonary complications related to the use of drugs and alcohol. Quiet voices share thoughts we strain to hear, and then is read the following, Who will heal the healers if not the healers themselves? Knowing each other, trusting each other, touching each other again and again with tenderness. Who will heal the healers if not the healers themselves? Putting aside the demands of profession and healing each other not with power but with love. Who will heal us if we do not heal each other with love and with companionship and with empathy and with joy? We enter the play of our life together and become whole. Singing and playing and loving and healing, there is justice for us where we venture to go. I found myself particularly drawn to this poem to share at our gathering of healers. Recently, in tracking down its source, I was stunned to find that it was written by the man himself, Cecil Burney, who had died a healer who died of his mortal wounds. His family was kind enough to give me permission to share his words, his identity, and the circumstances of his death with you. Because we believe there's value in speaking to each other, we've come to talk and to listen. The sweetness of understanding eases the aloneness inherent in our professions. This is a time to lay down the professional armor and examine it and talk a little more to the point. Addressing concerns that get missed at other times. And the healing of acceptance is a part of what keeps us coming back. But this poem offers a paradox as well as a promise. Who will heal the healers if not the healers themselves? Lots of people, that's who. Our recovery requires us to acknowledge that we don't have the market on wisdom of living or sobriety, and we're forced to become teachable by those we would never have considered were qualified to comment upon our existence. Our professions breed in us a peculiar brand of fear wedded with pride, and it can look like arrogance and rigidity. And that's only one of our many liabilities— whatever our profession is. The remarks I'm about to make address dilemmas of one particular group of healers, the psychotherapists among us. But as I was writing this talk, I remain mindful that many points I wish to make do not apply to therapists alone, but point out the hazards intrinsic to the art of healing itself. I hope, therefore, that each of you Therapist or not, can find a way to hear the parts that apply to yourself, as well as to those others out there. In tackling the rather broad topic of challenges to recovering therapists, I became immediately aware that I could only hope to cover a portion of what might be addressed, given the time allowed. Believing, as do many, that recovery is an ongoing process with time-related stages, I've chosen to focus on the therapist in early recovery, the months and perhaps first years after obtaining sobriety. The problems in getting a practicing alcoholic therapist to treatment would be a whole different talk. But I believe that early recovery has some intrinsic challenges that need to be focused on, and that's what I plan to share with you. I am also limiting myself to the person who was a therapist prior to recovery rather than becoming one after obtaining sobriety. While it's not uncommon for people to have a career change in recovery and become therapists, and those people share in the problems I'll be describing, I do think they may also have some different issues I simply don't have time to address. I am thus looking at the person who's been a practicing therapist while he was a practicing alcoholic or addict, however it was that he practiced. It's perhaps no accident that I'm choosing this group, having been in the field well over ten years and recovering a little over two. And I'm going to attempt to do the impossible. I'm going to speak in general terms about dilemmas for all therapists, regardless of orientation. I assume I'll offend somebody here with something, but I am trying. And speaking of offending... I am going to use the masculine pronoun he, because it's just incredibly awkward to be using he and she and all of that. But you may figure that I'm pretty mindful of the issue of women professionals being one myself. In beginning to prepare for the talk, I went to the literature and found the cupboard bare. Not surprisingly, only a little has been written on the alcoholic therapist, the bulk of that being by Bissell, Scarina, and Thorson. And very little has been done on the therapist who is already in recovery. So this is new territory, and what I wish to share with you then is taken from thinkers in related fields, my own thoughts and ideas, and from interviews with other recovering therapists who were kind enough to allow me to interview them. So I'd like to begin by looking at the nature of the work itself. I believe that engaging in the work of psychotherapy may be intrinsically hazardous to one's mental health. These hazards bear examining, as they may be familiar, but no longer acknowledged as sources of stress in our profession. The recovering therapist must be challenged to identify and cope with these stresses, particularly where they may impact his recovery. As many of you are aware There are numerous studies citing the high incidence of mental disorder in our professions. Most of those studies were done on psychiatric residents and graduate students in psychology. As you know, it's safer to look at those a little removed from the members of our group, whom we might all collude to say are doing very well. Thank you. These studies generally attribute emotional disorders to high-pressure work conditions or pre-existing personality traits. There are strikingly few studies done on experienced therapists who've been in the field and may be running into trouble, but there are some. Bermick, for example, in 1977 sent a questionnaire to 75 psychiatrists in the San Francisco area. This questionnaire focused on their opinions about the existence of emotional problems in their colleagues, other psychiatrists. The majority stated that such problems were indeed pervasive, While personality variables were assumed to contribute, many felt that the work of doing psychotherapy was a significant factor in these problems. While this is not a scientific study per se, these opinions must be seriously considered as they imply the work may in part be responsible itself for emotional difficulties encountered by therapists. Most of the studies done on these difficulties involve the idea of burnout. The process by which an idealistic and energetic therapist is transformed into a disillusioned, lethargic hack. The causes of burnout frequently lie in problems with a setting, particularly an institutional setting for whom that applies. Lack of advancements, problems with administration, inadequate compensation, and so forth. But again, there is something in the nature of the work itself. And one major difficulty is the presence of ambiguity, of model, of method, and of result. For all that we have striven to pull psychiatry and psychology away from magic and superstition, and to push the study of the mind toward the scientific realm, it still remains closer to art than to science. In this arena, we have a multitude of theories to explain human behavior. And generally we attach ourselves to one theory or another. If we are terribly frightened, we may convince ourselves that our model is the right model and that the others are wrong. But we are then faced with colleagues of divergent views who are equally adamant and there is no getting around images like the blind men and the elephant, which is enormously disquieting. If we are willing to remain flexible and open, We must live with the understanding that we order our experience with constructs so that we may practice our profession, but we must also live with knowing that we don't really know. Physicians who become psychiatrists may have a particularly poignant struggle with this ambiguity. Book in an article aptly titled, On Maybe Becoming a Therapist Perhaps, Notes that to become a psychiatrist, one must give up much of the cherished medical model. That model has served as an appropriate defense for the physician, as he says, against his own fears and distressing fantasies related to the transient nature of his own life and the universality of illness and death as they affect him. Intrinsic to the medical model and the practice of medicine, is the relief of holding on to understandable causality. There is usually, usually, a one-to-one relationship between cause and effect, even if results are sometimes less than hoped for. To move into the world of the mind is to abandon that comfort and the good defenses that go along with it. Our models usually are unsatisfying or erratic in their ability to provide illumination. At times, then, one must sit with the pain of the patient without even having the comfort of fully understanding why. Even if the therapist has what he considers a clearly articulated model, the method usually contains a great deal of ambiguity. I remember as a beginning therapist, one of my supervisors listened to a case presentation that I made, and he informed me that, of course, what I had to do was to redistribute the superego evenly throughout the ego. And I said, <clears throat> I said, of course. And I walked out a little chagrined. And not surprisingly, for all that I had some grip on the theory behind what he was saying, I had not the vaguest idea of how to put this into practice. And it sounded like I would probably need a wearing blender at some point. Many of us have had the experience of testifying in court, being examined by a hostile attorney who looks over his glasses and with raised eyebrows says, and tell us, doctor, just exactly what is it you do? (laughs) We may be able to provide the rhetoric, but I'm sure it strikes a chord inside very deep that says, good question, what exactly do I do? That's what we live with. If we're clear that we must live with not precisely knowing what we are doing or precisely why we are doing it, we are also asked to live with not precisely knowing the outcome of what we have done. Much has been written on the difficulties of accountability to others, especially for issues around insurance. But the lack of concrete, specific results, either short-term or long-term, may be a cause of great distress. It was Freud who said, in a much-quoted passage, it almost looks as if analysis were the third of the impossible professions in which one can be sure beforehand of achieving unsatisfying results. The other two, which we have no much longer, are education and government. And this is before campus, right? I must note in defense of the work that the tolerance of ambiguity can be an excellent provocation in the growth of the therapist. If handled well, it can cause him to challenge himself and his constructs, to remain fresh and open to new learning, and to avoid complacency, if handled well. So if the therapist is tolerating the stress in some constructive fashion, still the intrinsic nature of the work can be extremely draining. As many theorists note, the attention required for psychotherapy is qualitatively different from that used in ordinary living. The therapist must shift from internal receptive focus to an external mastering focus many times during the hour. He must enter another's intimate reality while keeping a handle on his own and some grip on the real world. He must thus become adept at fostering the use of his third ear, and tolerating frequent shifts between different states of mind. Thus, the therapist is not simply chatting about problems. He is quite cognitively active, even at the quietest of moments. Emotionally, he may be even more busy. Most of our theories challenge us to be catalysts of change by provoking powerful emotions to accompany cognitions. As we've known in Freud's time, Detached insight is not enough. In this process of helping to create an emotionally-laden experience for the patient, the therapist is unlikely to be an untouched observer. He is, in fact, a participant. As Whitfield describes, psychotherapy taxes the emotional resources of the psychotherapist, and by asking him to be in constant contact with strong emotions while sitting quietly in a chair... Deprived of an immediate physical route for discharging whatever tensions he builds up, it taxes the physical resources of his body as well. Now, the therapist is vulnerable to forgetting this wear and tear of his profession. At the end of a long day, he is probably not sweating, he may have no concrete products of his work, and he might not even have a huge pile of paperwork. Might not. Due to the kind of ambiguity we've been talking about, he cannot specify his expenditure of energy, yet he is undeniably drained. If he does not pay attention to this drain and find ways to take care of it, he is a likely candidate for burnout in a form that sounds like a diffuse complaint of discomfort with little to attach to it. At its best, the work may be stimulating and energizing. At its best, working with high-functioning, growth-oriented patients, it may still be intrinsically taxing. But what about ongoing contact with patients with severe pathology? Harold Fine, in a poetic article on the fate of the well-experienced dynamic therapist, speaks about the toll of the work taken over the years. In observing therapists who have worked in the field over a long period of time with egos more fragile than their own, he says, despair and depletion in the therapist, or in more mythological terms, is the petrification that results from gazing too far, too long, and too deeply at the psychotherapeutic Gorgon's head. Existential issues about the meaning of life or the lack of meaning are raised with exquisite penetration. The lack of immediate satisfaction, the ongoing contact with dysfunctional patterns, and anguish that is real and is not readily relieved create conditions that pull for hopelessness and despair in the therapist. It is a challenge to maintain optimism for one's patients and ultimately for oneself. And it is how the work speaks about oneself that may be the most painful and stressful of all to deal with. What about the areas that are unfinished and still in conflict within the therapist? The therapist, in close interaction with his patient, is having many responses. Some just personal reactions, others related to those unfinished areas. There are assorted views on how to consider the psychological responses of the therapist to the person of the patient and to the work at hand. Some ignore it. Some label it as bad and provide guidelines for getting rid of it. Others suggest it's at the heart of the transformation process, and rather than being an undesirable byproduct, the therapist's personal response is essential to movement in psychotherapy. I must admit a bias in this direction. I believe that our motivation to become and to stay therapist lies in part with the pull to touch deeply our own unresolved conflicts. That's one of the payoffs we get to finish some of our own healing. In that light, our own still-active conflicts power part of the therapy, compelling us to participate and making up part of the catalytic process. I see our personal issues as essential and creative when seen clearly. As Nietzsche said, I say unto you, One must still have chaos in oneself to be able to give birth to a dancing star. I say unto you, you still have chaos in yourselves. But a note here. The word chaos is familiar to all of us as we remember our personal histories. If I am supportive of creative chaos, we must remember there is chaos and then there is chaos. And I think I am still learning the distinction. My point here is that the provocation of the work is a double-edged sword if it provides some vehicle to touch unfinished work. Often this process is a source of much tension and anguish. It is, after all, the patient's hour, and it's tricky to handle well what arises in the therapist. It may be, in fact, handled badly or not at all, contributing to the emotional distress of the therapist. One final note before I move to the implications for a recovering therapists. All of the points that I've made about the nature of the stress of psychotherapy touch on a pragmatic issue that's been cited as one of the primary factors in burnout. Isolation. This inevitable process of doing therapy with its undefinable outcome is more often than not performed in isolation. The work is done behind closed doors, even in a busy institution, and the constraints of confidentiality and the sheer impossibility of accurate description defy truly satisfying sharing. For those of us in private practice, isolation may be even more profound. Daily work may be structured so as to provide little more than one patient after another, occasional contact with receptionist or secretary if there is even one, and professional phone calls. While this setup allows a maximum of privacy and autonomy, the normalizing effect of interaction that's somewhat normal about the mundane aspects of living may be missing entirely. And this can be deadly, exacerbating the hopelessness and despair that therapists could be prone to. For them, there's no balance for being an ongoing audience to conflict, frustration, and pain. And the sheer human loneliness of missing contact with others is important to pay attention to. While genuine contact with the patient should address some of this need, it should not be relied upon, or the delicate balance required to maintain a therapeutic stance of focusing on the patient's needs, and not primarily the therapist, is disrupted. With this picture of difficulties that virtually all therapists face, let's add the variable that the therapist is also recovering. My focus, as I mentioned, is on early recovery, the first months and perhaps years after becoming sober. My basic tenet is that the task requirements of doing therapy may at times be at odds with the tasks of recovering. I'd like to point out where some of those conflicts may be and propose some solutions. I found Stephanie Brown's developmental model of recovery particularly useful in my own work, and I'll use her ideas uh, concerning tasks in recovery. One initial question is that of reentry, when and how. However near or far the therapist needed to remove himself from participation in his work in order to get sober, he must seriously question the conditions of his work once he is sober. For some, the question becomes as basic as examining the possibility of career change. In my own practice, I have been instrumental in helping people to decide to leave the profession, and I'm sure most of you have as well. I have at times been envious. Leaving the field should be a viable option for those whose needs would be better met elsewhere. For those who do decide to stay, the pull to return to work to reestablish the professional identity is usually enormous, and it may be added to by the pragmatics of finances, the needs of ongoing clients, and where applicable, pressures of private practice, such as maintaining referral sources. And if the therapist has not allowed himself to fully take into account how stressful his work really is... He is in danger of underestimating the strain it will place on him and overestimating his health and his ability to do his job. I've talked to recovering therapists who've made various choices about their work in early recovery, from never fully stopping client contact to taking more than a year off. Whatever the decision about timing, all said that therapists should be extremely careful in the beginning about, how the, about the amount and difficulty of the work. It is my belief that a therapist in this position should be aided to examine his choices carefully, how soon and how many clients and who. Bearing in mind that therapists are greatly impacted by their work, that it is intrinsically demanding at the best of times, but capable of evoking reactions such as despair and hopelessness, I urge this therapist to review his caseload on a case-by-case basis. And to refer when necessary. He should be given permission to acknowledge the depth and ongoingness of his illness and to treat himself gently. He must be supported in acknowledging his limitations, to say, I can't, I won't, or perhaps even harder, I just don't want to. In my own practice, only two months ago, did I get to the place where I could say, I'm not because I just don't want to. To refer cases which may simply be too demanding during early recovery may require confrontation with basic issues like the need to rescue and be omnipotent and by all means to be perfect, which those of us in our professions have in abundance. In other words, to work our issues of codependency as they relate to our patients. Other pragmatic issues may also need to be considered. Solo practice may be undesirable because of isolation. Schedules may need drastic revision. And alone, the therapist is probably not trustworthy to make such decisions or really look at his caseload any more than he's capable of remaining sane and sober by himself. It's my strong recommendation that any recovering therapist be involved in intense, Ongoing supervision by a professional that not only knows his field, but understands the dynamics of addiction. Contact and support from such a supervisor creates a much-needed arena for working professional issues without compromising the recovery process. There, he can voice his fears, explore those needs for control and acceptance, and learn to make realistic choices in his workload. The very act of seeking supervision may serve as a good reminder that he does not need to be as alone as he probably was in his drinking days. Work. He does take care of himself in selecting the appropriate kind and amount of work to do. What further challenges await him? I've mentioned ambiguity as an inherently difficult part of doing therapy. The I'm doing something for unclear reasons with uncertain outcome. Unless the therapist solves this dilemma by becoming dogmatic, he signs up to hold that tension of ambiguity. Yet that may be in full opposition to the optimal focus and flavor of early recovery. In that stage, the focus is necessarily on the concrete, the behavior, not the motivations behind it, the what, not the why. For those of particularly prone to endless obsessional thinking, usually pondered out loud, the external thought-stopping edict of shut up and listen, and the ever-frustrating and ever-wise reply to most early inquiries of don't drink and go to meetings underscores the need for action with a de-emphasis on cognitive rumination. Here, then, is a specific dilemma. The newly recovering therapist, like any newcomer, is told his life depends upon pragmatics. His livelihood may depend upon embracing ambiguity and rejection of simple solutions. Scarina describes this beautifully as she speaks about alcoholic psychologists. She states that psychologists facilitate their own denial while they're drinking as data are collected and collected and collected, only to be analyzed and analyzed and analyzed in an attempt to come to omnipotent conclusions, but only to Obsess. I hardly think that tendency is erased with entry into recovery. How to integrate these needs and tendencies of the therapist, which are reinforced by his profession, and the requirement of leaving the clouds of speculation for the concrete tasks of recovery is an important aspect of early recovery and must be done in such a way that does not create the necessity to choose between one way of thinking or the other. Related to the stress of ambiguity is the question of identity, and Dr. Tursky spoke this morning of identity issues with doctors, and here's some specific ones with regard to therapists. Most of our theories require the catalytic agent in therapy, i.e. the therapist, to be in some measure present with his real being. As was mentioned earlier, the handling of the therapist's personal self and personal responses is dependent on his orientation, but most orientations require the therapist to utilize himself as a therapeutic tool, at the least as a diagnostic instrument, at the most as a full participant in a reciprocal process. We use our internal responses to provide rudders and signposts and the foundation of empathy and mirroring. Intrinsic to the use of self as a therapeutic tool is a basic and stable sense of identity. If not requiring full resolution of all conflicts, the therapist must feel that he has he's comfortable that he has a reliable map of the territory, with rocks and shoals noted and provisions for unexpected whirlpools. The recovering therapist, however, has presumably entered that ego smashing dismantling of the old identity in order to allow construction of a new identity that has discarded uh, notions of control regarding drinking or using and no longer carries the denial intrinsic to practicing substance abuse. Brown is highly articulate about the necessary process of loss of the old identity. And of course this loss is not limited to the issue of drinking. If recovery is truly entered, every tenet and aspect of self-concept is open to question. Revisions are made at all levels, and a part of the pain of early sobriety is the splintering of cherished assumptions about the self that may superficially appear to have virtually nothing to do with the issue of use of drugs or alcohol. For the therapist, the need to hold on to the old professional identity may truly be at war with establishing his new identity as a recovering alcoholic. If a person is an accountant, or a judge, or hairdresser, in his return to work, he may be able to grasp his or her confidence and remain certain of what he knows there, even while the rest of his world shakes. Even the physician may retain a sense of his medical knowledge standing upright, if slightly dented, while the rest of what I know is incinerated. For the therapist, however, such is not the case. How the therapist makes his living is based on his belief that he knows how people work, sort of. Remember, he must tolerate that ambiguity. His professional career is staked in some way on selling the use of that knowledge to others. And if a basic tool of the trade is his own personhood, a cornerstone of that knowledge is not only I know how others work, but also I know how I work. But in recovery... The therapist is busy finding out he doesn't know as much as he thought he did. Not about others, and not about himself. His basic tool is now suspect. And his entire world may be rocked, including the farthest reaches of his professional competency. The simplest case, of course, is the practitioner who believed in the old myth that alcoholism is a symptom of an underlying conflict. I'd like to believe that with the focus of education around chemical dependency, this is truly an outdated model. But I am one of those practitioners whose disease caught up with them while believing that model. And I am not quite three years sober. And I believed myself to be one of the most enlightened therapists around. For those of us with that problem, the conflict is direct. If you accept the medical model and related theories, you are left with, well... If that's true, what else am I ignorant about? It takes a good deal of integrative work to place this new and contradictory information in the context of old theories. For those therapists giving lip service to a medical model, still the temptation to revert to a model potentially including control is always present. Generally, models of behavior espouse control and options the behavior can be changed or else uh, why are we in practice? And as Bissell and Skarina note, the very convictions like behavior can be changed that shore us up even in the absence of immediate and direct gratification may cause us to cling or to revert to the concept of being able to control the behavior of drinking. Yet as we know, this concept of control is antithetical to the process of recovery. And there is a seduction of of old ways of thinking, of old aspects of identity ready to assert themselves. The therapist in recovery who wrestles openly and painfully with the fact that he does not know how to control his drinking, who admits his powerlessness, will return to a work which may pull him to respond to tension by knowing something. He may begin to think, I have to know something about how people operate, my patients pay me good money to know... And many of them do get better, and so I must know something, I hope. His need to know something professionally may war with his need to see he doesn't know in recovery. He may solve his cognitive dissonance by tossing out the dissonant information in the face of the requirement to reestablish himself as professionally competent and to earn his living with that competence He may be tempted to discard the pieces of identity that don't fit, that of loss of control and all the implications. Essential for the therapist who is bombarded with old and new learning, whose work and needs for self-respect pull him away from viable models of recovery, is vital contact with professionals who are familiar with his dilemma. Supervision is, again, an excellent arena for him to work issues of identity and changes in theoretical stance, but also needed is peer contact with others who have managed the integration and can provide sturdy models and give personal answers to real theoretical questions. They can support him to stay open in his lack of understanding and to avoid closing down prematurely. Speaking of remaining open... The growing edge of the challenge to be authentically present in the therapeutic hour may create a painful dilemma. Not just about knowledge and competency, but the basics of who am I sitting in this therapist chair? Our recovery programs address the chaos and the impact of this new identity on significant others. Yet here, in the therapist's work, may be a whole other set of circumscribed but intimate relationships that receive the impact of the therapist's change of identity. This may be true of work with patients who bridged the transition from practicing to being, ther- to being sober, or new patients obtained in early recovery while the therapist is still going through massive personal reorganization. Now, there may be some room to comment and process the changes in the therapist, but again, the nature of the relationship requires the primary focus to be on the patient, not the therapist. Recognizing and handling the stress of answering and not being able to fully answer who am I is essential to the emotional well-being of the therapist. And this should be done with peers and supervisors, not simply alone. Let's assume the work is going well and that the therapist is coping with the difficulties of identity and ambiguity. Still there is the question of balance. Always prone to overwork, and in a profession that calls for contemplation and introspection, obsession and analysis, the recovering therapist now attends meetings. The focus shifts, but the modality is similar. Listening and talking about experience. Remember the observation that therapy is hard on the therapist cognitively, emotionally, and physically. A balance of activity is absolutely essential, whether it's the practical participation in mowing a lawn or taking a walk or cooking, using the body to support the mind, which we in our armchairs are far more likely to prescribe than to do, and becoming re-involved in the ordinary tasks of life in an ordinary way, which all of us who are alcoholics or addicts may have shunned in our need to be special, and which may be simply foreign. To those of us used to filtering the experience through analysis, one of my friends caustically remarked that he hoped I'd one day learn to simply pass the bread rather than getting lost in the symbolism of concrete nurturance and never quite handing it over. And so we learn to pass the bread. And those tasks can ground us and balance our heads, which are called a wonder by our professions as well as our nature. This balance should also be challenging to our isolation. Involvement in the healthy mundane brings contact with others at all kinds of levels. Simply rubbing shoulders can ease that loneliness of the heart that we are prone to. If all goes well and we are taking good care of ourselves, our work still pushes at us in ways that can war with recovery. We are provoked merely by participating in powerful emotional moments. More than that, as I've stated, it is my belief that we are pulled to the work in part because of our own, re- own huh, our own unresolved issues. The healthiest of therapists may find himself hit and impacted in vulnerable areas by the work he does. And the early recovering therapist is hardly a picture of mental health. Everything is shaking, and even old issues that had appeared to be resolved, especially with liberal application of drugs or alcohol, suddenly reappear. We know that about early recovery for everyone. The person is like a turtle without a shell, hence the AA wisdom of focusing on abstinence and minimizing external stress and internal provocation. And this fits with Brown's developmental model of recovery, recovery being seen as being made of sequential stages and tasks in each stage that take into account the individual's physiological state at the time and his emotional developmental stage. She sees the immature alcoholic identity developing over time and developing from the outside in, from external behavior to internal self-concept. The stage of early recovery requires emphasis on alcohol and beginning concerns with the environment. Because the alcoholic is very much like a turtle with his shell off as his defenses begin to crumble, and he is deficient in coping skills for handling emotional conflict and anxiety, there's a general edict for the newly recovering alcoholic to avoid anxiety-producing situations. And this is part of the long-standing war between traditional therapy and AA and chemical dependency programs a therapy that focuses on uncovering conflict or obtaining insight may be provoking the patient to drink or use to escape feelings he is not yet prepared to handle. The implication is that timing is essential and that intense engagement with what Brown describes as interpretation of self and others should be sought only after a solid program of recovery has been established. Experts like Margaret Bean support the idea that uncovering therapy can be quite effective, but later rather than earlier. And I fully agree with this model. And yet the therapist, merely by doing his job, may find himself provoked with some regularity. At a time of heightened vulnerability, as in early sobriety, he may be stimulated to experience conflicts and emotions that he's not yet equipped to cope and ideally would be encountered much later in his recovery. If this reality is not taken into account, and if he is not fully aware of the impact upon him, he may be bullied by forces that push him to reach for old solutions to familiar tensions, to drink about them. He could thus be a prime target for slipping a relapse. I therefore think it highly desirable for the early recovering therapist to not only be involved in close ongoing supervision where he can dialogue about professional issues and monitor his work to make sure it's clean, but that he also may need to be in therapy himself, again with someone fully aware of the issues of addiction and recovery. Hopefully he can use that arena to discharge and work issues as they become urgent and redefend when necessary. The working therapist may not be able to wait until later to confront issues of self in the world. Again, I'd like to mention one specific area of unresolved conflict, that of codependency. Our long-standing needs to be omnipotent and to fix and rescue have been described by many, and it is a double-edged dilemma. In the midst of nebulous results, we may be confounded by patients not getting better and by patients getting better. When they don't get better, our needs for mastery are thwarted and we may become discouraged. But when they do, we may be thrown into envy as we are forced to look at some of our own deficits. In any case, the struggle is partly about the need to see oneself as special and powerful, often at the expense of the patient. Our motivation, at best, is extremely complex. Harold Searles, a most eloquent spokesman regarding countertransference, talks about psychiatrists, but in a way that can apply to all psychotherapists. He states, The therapist functioning in the spirit of dedication, which is the norm among physicians and other branches of medicine, represents here, in the practice of psychotherapy, an unconscious defense against his seeing clearly many crucial aspects of both the patient and himself. He notes this dedication may, in fact, torture the patient in setting up a system that says, See how wonderfully hard I work to make you better, you poor wretch. And it maintains the status quo of the sick and helpless patient giving reinforcement to the powerful healer. Now, for some reason, I think a few of us might have to wrestle with our needs for control and our desires to be omnipotent. If we have held our humility in tailoring our work schedule to our needs to in being ill, there will still be an ongoing urge to reassert power and control while doing the work. It may be especially difficult to maintain our vulnerability in a setting that so easily allows us to be one-up at the expense of our patient. Our needs in this area that were big when we were drinking may be felt even more acutely when we're sober back to the absolute need for close supervision to keep us clear and clean about our own agendas. Thus, my cautions for the therapist in early recovery suggest a close examination of the old conditions of work and the addition of new resources. Pragmatically, he may need to make such decisions as working with a reduced caseload. He may need help in leaving his profession behind as he goes to a meeting, he may not only need to schedule time for meetings but time for exercise or relaxing as well. And he must work to to mesh his needs as a professional with his needs as a recovering alcoholic, rather than allowing seemingly incompatible tasks to put him in a dangerous position. Of primary importance in the break is the breaking of the professional isolation. The therapist requires close contact with peers. He badly needs company in this journey. We know that when we send him to AA meetings. But he also needs to wrestle out loud about the pulls of old and new learning, to have input from those who have gone before that can help him integrate the two without throwing out teachability, without throwing out the newly forming identity as a sober alcoholic, and without throwing out baby with bathwater as he ponders his understanding of human behavior and wonders about his professional competence. He needs close and safe, ongoing supervision to be guided about professional decisions and how to take care of himself in his work. Acutely needed is a vehicle for monitoring his work to illuminate his areas of conflicts and potential contamination. I believe that's good practice anyway, but there is a particular need here. Finally, it is highly likely that he will require his own therapy, where he can do his personal work in a fashion that focuses on the anxiety he may experience and allows him to deal with conflicts that arise, timely or not, in terms of ideal recovery. My focus has been on challenges in early recovery. I don't have time to fully address ongoing recovery, but there is one issue I'd like to mention. Certainly all the points that I've mentioned speak about helping the therapist remain in recovery and practice his profession at the same time. What about the therapist who relapses at some later point? I have a particular concern about that person because I think investment in professional identity may provide a substantial barrier to seeking help. The problem lies in the attribution of competency. As I've noted before, Professionals in other areas are assumed to be competent on the basis of skills and possessing a body of knowledge that is not implicated by his drinking or using. And not so the therapist. He has good reason to believe that while the world may forgive him for his initial bout with the disease, it assumes that once he's sober, he has the tools and self-awareness to stay that way. After all, his competence is based in knowing himself and others. His fantasy about the reaction of others to slipping or relapse may go along the lines of thinking they think. How much does he really know if he can't stay sober? What kind of a therapist is he anyway? I think the fear inherent in dealing with relapse would be acute in any profession. But with that fantasy so accessible, it may paralyze the psychotherapist in being able to say, I'm in trouble. The solution is the same as in early recovery. If isolation is avoided and he is in supportive contact with other professionals, he may be able to constructively handle relapse and move back into recovery. If he remains isolated, he may suffer a long time. In closing, I wish to return to the beginning. I'm the last speaker in the scientific section. We now begin to share with each other differently. I have noted the paradox that tools for sobriety and sanity are often handed to us by those we might have been least willing to hear. And that contact with others outside our professions gives us something we may have been missing for a long time, a way to rejoin the human race and be just another person. But now these people, these people here, each of us being just another person, We who are here from so many different places can touch each other and speak from our experience and understanding in most precious ways. As Cecil has said, who will heal the healers if not the healers themselves? Putting aside the demands of profession and healing each other, not with power, but with love. Thank you.